President Wilkinson, members of the faculty, and students of the Brigham Young University. No one can face this audience of 10,000 students and friends without his soul being filled with emotion. It's difficult for me Keep back the tears. I get pardon me. I visited the school many times. Since Dr. Brim Hall's day, Dr. Harris. Dr. Wilkinson, Dr. McDonald. I think I've never been more overwhelmed with the reception than this morning. <clears throat> the greatness of the institution opportunities, responsibilities, one cannot fully realize. I was due here two weeks ago and had a theme to deliver, which I thought was timely and appropriate. But I come with another theme this morning. Two contending forces. Those forces are known by different terms, have been known by different terms throughout the ages. In the beginning, they are known as Satan on one, Christ the only begotten. Satan, one hand, Christ, the other. In Joshua's time, called gods of the Amorites, on one, the Lord, on the other. 
Paul spoke of the works of the flesh on the one hand, fruits of the Spirit on the other. It's often spoken of as selfishness on one, life of service the other. Personal liberty later these days, domination of the state, the other. Communism, one hand, free agency on the other. And as a text, I say to you, choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. Two incidents since within this appointment was made have prompted me to choose that theme. One was a young girl an unmarried mother. Taken to the hospital recently. Which gave birth to a little boy. Whom she preferred never to see. Saying it'll be better. It'll be easier this way. No mother stood by her side. Nobody knew, as very few knew, where she'd been living recently. A kind woman, a truly Christian woman, took care of her. A little baby boy turned over to the Relief Society. Never know his father. He's just as well. The human rat. You never know his mother. Let us hope that some couple will be made happy by mothering, rearing, and loving the unknown babe. That's one. The fruit, the result of one of the forces operating in this universe since man began. The other, what President Wilkinson has referred to, the wreck of the summit conference last Monday. 
Two forces are operating. A great battle of ideas is in progress in the world today, has been for years. I chose to say a few words about that. I'll repeat much of what you know already, because I quote from an instructor in this institution. There's no question, students, that we are living in what may be the most epoch-making period of all time. Scientific discoveries and inventions, the breaking down of heretofore approved social and moral standards, the uprooting of all religious moorings, all give evidence that we are witnessing one of the most, one of those tidal waves of human thought which periodically sweep over the world and change the destiny of the human race. In the beginning, being known as Satan, came before the Father, saying, Behold, here am I. Send me. I will do it. Saving the human family, going to people this earth. Wherefore give me thine honor, Another, behold, my beloved Son, chosen from the beginning, said unto me, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. There you have placed before you the two great forces. Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, that I should give him unto, that I should give unto him mine own power. By the power of mine only begotten, I cause that he should be cast down. He became Satan, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will even as many as would hearken unto my voice. 
Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Whom you will serve. Let us look at the man who disrupted the great consultation of the leaders of the world. In his heart are the teachings of Karl Marx. You students have heard, know about the kind of life he lived. How his wife suffered and how his children starved. Here's what one man who knew him says about him. Marx loved his own person much more than he loved his friends and apostles. And no friendship could hold water against the slightest wound to his vanity. Marx will never forgive a slight to his person. You must worship him, make an idol of him, if he is to love you in return. You must at least fear him if he is to tolerate you. He likes to surround himself with pygmies, with lackeys and flatterers. All the same, there are some remarkable men among his intimates. In general, however, one may say that in the circle of Marx's intimates, there is very little brotherly frankness but a great deal of machination and diplomacy. There is sort of tacit struggle and a compromise between the self-loves of the various persons concerned. And where vanity is at work, there is no longer place for brotherly feeling. Everyone is on his guard, is afraid of being sacrificed of being annihilated. Marx is the chief distributor of honors, but is also the invariably perfidious and malicious, the never frank and open inciter to the persecution of those whom he suspects or who had the misfortune of failing to show all the veneration he expects. As soon as he has ordered a persecution, there's no limit to the baseness of infamy of the methods. So said, wrote Michael Bakunin, the first Russian to become interested in revolutionary activities and a party pillar who fell under the purge. That same doctrine was advocated by Lenin, who succeeded, who was a leader in the revolution in Russia. Note the same spirit. We must hate. Hatred is the basis of communism. 
I'm quoting. Children must be taught to hate their parents if they are not communists. End of quotation. Listen to the amazing declaration of the former Russian Commissar of Education. Quote, We must hate Christians and Christianity. Even the best of them must be considered our worst enemies. Christian love is an obstacle to the development of the revolution. Down with love of one's neighbor. What we want is hate. Only then will we conquer the universe. That same spirit was manifest by a man by the name of Hitler. I quote from his. In my great educative work, I am beginning with the young. Weakness has to be knocked out of them. A violently active, dominating, intrepid, brutal youth. That is what I am after. There must be no weakness or tenderness in it. I want to see once more in its eyes the gleam of the pride of pride and independence of the beast of prey. That's from the voice of destruction by Hermann Rauschening, confidant of Hitler and member of the secret party conclave from 1932 to 1935. Remember, we're talking about two conflicting forces. You know the story of Hitler? Now, Khrushchev. During his American tour last fall, according to our Salt Lake Tribune, if anyone believes that our smiles involve abandonment of the teaching of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, he deceives himself poorly. Those who wait for that must wait until a shrimp learns to whistle. That is 1959. He spoke about a common goal. You who looked at Red Think the other day, finally that communist goal means is something different from what you and I have in mind when we speak about the millennium or a, a, a universal peace. Unity, in the communist mind, is voluntary submission to communist discipline. 
to which force? Voluntary submission to communist discipline. When you speak of peace, the communist means the cessation of all opposition to communism. The acceptance of a communist world. Then and only then can there be peace. This alone is what peace means in communist language. Once this is understood, the utter falsity and hypocrisy of communist references to peace become at once obvious. You find that in Think, October 1959, an article written by Edward Hunter, foreign news correspondent who has studied communism for many years. I've mentioned these things simply to emphasize one dominant force who has as its ultimate achievement and victory the destruction of capitalism. The destruction of the free agency of man which God has given him. And that destruction may be brought about as advocated by the Marx himself in a brutal, brutal way. What's the other force? It's just the opposite. Jesus said to the man who came and asked him, which is the law, greatest law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When Marx was asked, at one time, what was his object? He answered, to dethrone God. Dethrone him. Jesus, the other opposite force, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, Hang all the law and the prophets. Perhaps there never was a time in the world when these two forces faced each other as they did last Monday and as we're facing right today. Now let's look at this second little force. On a momentous occasion 2,000 years ago, 11 men assembled near a mountain in Galilee. 
11 men. Humble, obscure, who had been chosen and ordained apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to appointment, these men met in the resurrected Christ, who made what to them must have been a startling declaration. They had been with their master not yet three years, and had been expressly enjoined by him to go not in the way of the Gentiles, to enter no city of the Samaritans, but to go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But at this meeting, as his final parting instructions, he opened their eyes to the final universality of the gospel by giving them this divine commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In the restricted experience of the eleven disciples, the idea of preaching Christ and his saving doctrine to any but members of their own race germinated very slowly. Indeed, the Savior of men found it necessary to give another direct revelation to Peter, the chief apostle, before even he fully realized that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And when Peter heard that revelation and saw that they were entitled to it, he opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted by him. However, as the light of truth dawned in the hearts of these eleven men, these earnest followers set about to give the gospel to the world. Twelve simple men, writes an English historian, novelist. Twelve simple men, with only the wind to bear them over the seas, with only a few pence in their pockets, and a shining faith in their hearts. They fell far short of their ideal. Their words were twisted and mocked, and false temples were built over their bones in praise of a Christ they would have rejected. And yet, by the light of their inspiration, many of the world's loveliest things were created many of the world's finest minds inspired.
in the restricted sense and so on. Slowly, indeed, the Savior of men found it necessary to give another direct revelation and so on. And yet, by the light of their inspiration, many of the world's loveliest things were created, and many of the world's finest minds inspired, I repeat. Can you not see many nations yet to hear the truth, students, Jew as well as Gentile, India, China, both awakening, Russia enveloping with, enveloped with communism, a new religious freedom must come. God will overrule it, for that people must hear the truth, and truth in simplicity. Truly there is much for the church to do in the coming century. A man who's been studying the process of the world, believing how it, man came through long eras of evolution, reaches the same conclusion which Christ has given to us by revelation. And I thought I'd quote him this morning. Let every man remember that the destiny of mankind is inconquerable. And that it depends greatly upon his will to collaborate in the transcendent past. Let him remember that the law is and always has been to struggle. And the fight has lost nothing of its violence by being transposed from the material on to the spiritual plane. Let him remember that his own dignity, his nobility as a human being, must emerge from his efforts to liberate himself from his bondage and to obey his deepest aspirations. Khrushchev would have us go back to the animal plane, eliminate God, dignify a human being as the only God to worship. I've given you a picture of such men as they would hold up as leaders. But this man says, even from his reason, he must liberate himself from his bondage and to obey his deepest aspirations, the bondage of appetite and passions. And let him, above all, never forget that the divine spark is in him alone and that he is free to disregard it, to kill it, or to come closer to God by showing his eagerness to work with him and for him. Students, two forces are at work.
There might be a conflagration such as the world has never known. Mankind will have to choose the one course or the other. It's difficult, if not quite impossible, for one to say of anything with absolute certainty, this is the best. Or this is the worst. If one so express oneself, another with greater intelligence and more experience may say with much more accuracy that something else is best or some other thing is worst. It's therefore the better part of wisdom not to dogmatize nor to speak with too much assurance of things about which there may be a divergence of opinion and upon which one person's judgment would be as mighty as another's. It is somewhat presumptuous, therefore, to point out specifically the noblest calling in life. For as soon as it is named, someone may prove conclusively that we have used a superlative degree inadvisedly. However, whatever its name, it is evident that man's noblest work must be impregnated with the greatest of all forces, and that force is love. Furthermore, this power must be directed not for selfish purposes, nor to achieve personal ends. Caused the downfall of that young girl. who might have joined the class described by Victor Hugo when he described the state reached by Fantine. Do you remember? I want you to picture it. My heart bled the other day when I heard this. The holy law of Jesus Christ governs our civilization, but it does not yet permeate it. It is said that slavery has disappeared from European civilization. That's a mistake. It still exists, but it weighs now only upon woman. That is to say, upon grace, upon feebleness, upon beauty, upon maternity. This is not one of the least of man's shames. Furthermore, this power of love must be directed not for selfish purposes, I repeat, nor to achieve personal ends, though self-preservation is the first law of nature. A calling that has in view only the preservation of self cannot be called noble.
the term that excludes all sordidness and includes greatness of mind and generosity of soul. The noblest calling in life then must be one in which the attribute of love will manifest itself not for self but for others. It must be that calling which most nearly emulates true motherhood, the mightiest of all forces in human society. Indeed, if motherhood were not a distinct and individual creation, we could pause here and have all true men agree that it is the noblest, purest calling in life, and that which makes is the Christ-like element of giving her the life of another. A father may turn his back on his child. Brothers and sisters may become inveterate enemies. Husbands may desert their wives. Wives their husbands. But a true mother's love endures through all. The element then that makes true motherhood divine must also permeate that call or vocation which may be distinguished by the term noblest. The most worthy calling in life, therefore, is that in which man can serve best his fellow man. It isn't preaching. It isn't teaching. It isn't medicine. It isn't engineering, nor any other vocation common among men. Each of these, though offering opportunities for service, may be followed by men actuated by the most selfish and sordid motives. The noblest aim in life is to strive to live to make other lives better and happier. Browning sounds the keynote in Paracelsus when he says, There is an answer to the passionate longings of the heart for fullness. And I knew it. And the answer is this. Live in all things outside yourself by love, and you will have joy. That is the life of God. It ought to be our life. In him it is accomplished and perfect. But in all created things, it is a lesson learned slowly against difficulty. Such is the divine message given to the prophet Joseph in the words, Remember this worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Such is the philosophy expressed by the Redeemer in the seemingly paradoxical statement, he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. The meaning of this becomes clear in the light of another passage which says, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my servants, ye have done it unto me. To no other group of men in all the world is given a better opportunity to engage in the noblest calling in life than that which is afforded the elders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to the members of that church. 
to establish salvation and peace to the extent of their individual effort, their lives are dedicated to make the world a better and fitter place for man, their talents and means are consecrated. Just to be associated with men striving towards such an aim is a joy, and to assist them in their quest an inspiration. Unselfishly, they are trying to serve their fellow men in love. Thus far, at least, they are true followers of the Master. For at the very heart of the Christian faith, the most sublime of its teachings, and to him who penetrates its deepest sense, the most human is this, to save lost humanity, the invisible God, came to dwell among us in the form of man and will to make himself known by, his simple, by the single word, love. Two forces are operating. Young men and women, life is before you. I quote, two voices are calling, one coming out from the swamps of selfishness and force, where success means death, and the other from the hilltops of justice and progress where even failure brings glory. Two lights are seen in your horizon. One the fast-fading marsh light of power, and the other the slowly rising sun of human brotherhood. Two ways lie open for you. One leading to an even lower and lower plane. Where are heard the cries of despair and the curses of the poor. Where manhood shrivels and possession rots down the possessor. The other leading to the highlands of the morning where are heard the glad shouts of humanity and where honest effort is rewarded with immortality. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. You saw the two forces facing each other last Monday. They're facing it today. God alone described it will control the outcome. To the thousand, ten thousand students here assembled, I pray with all the earnest of an earnest heart. God keep you away from the low seeking, scheming plans 
of him who enthrones passion, who decries self-control, who denounces the family, the sacredness of the family, and who, in the words of Marx himself, would dethrone God. God inspire you to sustain and fight for and die for, if necessary, the light of Christ. It says, Love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.